Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. If you are hunkered down at home, as you should be, this may be a good time to check out our course platform at onecommune.com, where you'll find programs from Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hof, Brendan Burchard, Adrian Mishler, and so many other brilliant personal development and wellness luminaries. Our courses span yoga, meditation, spiritual development, functional medicine, recovery, and social impact, essentially everything you need to be holistically well. And we know how important that is right now. So just go to onecommune.com. So given the gravity of the global pandemic, one might instinctually think that a meditation practice is dispensable, but nothing could be less true. If you are one of the superheroes on the front line, a healthcare worker, a medical professional, a food provider, a scientist, or a government worker, you will be stressed to your limits physically and psychologically. Even 30 seconds of deep breathing and grounding can help you stay centered, focused, and healthy. We need you, and we support you. So if you are someone on the front lines and could benefit from a meditation course on your phone, in your pocket, email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. Most of us, however, are now being called into inaction. The best thing we can do for one another, ironically, is to distance from each other. In this inaction, we are left alone with our mind, where all of existence and life is experienced. Now, as a species wired for connection, this aloneness can be torturous. As I recently heard Sam Harris insightfully point out, the most severe form of punishment short of a death sentence is solitary confinement. Most of us are simply not trained to deal with our minds in isolation. Fortunately, there are teachers who are making this practice available and relatable, and at the front of that pack is today's guest, Light Watkins. Light travels the world teaching meditation. He's the author of two popular books, The Inner Gym, A 30-Day Workout for Strengthening Happiness, and Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. He is the creator of the very popular daily email called Light's Daily Dose of Inspiration, and he also has a meditation course running right here on Commune. You can find it at onecommune.com. So if you already have a meditation practice, now is the time to lean into it. And if you don't, this is the time to cultivate one. And for God's sake, this guy's name is Light. What more could you ask for from a teacher? I hope you enjoy our conversation today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. So I, I'm known, I guess, to the world as this meditation uh, teacher and expert. I, I I never really, you know, set out to become that. It just really it happened almost by happenstance, and it was a it was a process of following inspiration and these sort of celestial breadcrumbs that eventually I looked up and I was teaching meditation and I turned, <laughs> turns out I was pretty good at it. And, uh, and a lot of people wanted to hear, hear what I had, what I thought about it. And uh, so now I do retreats and trainings and I write books and I talk about obviously meditation, but also inspiration and happiness because those are kind of tied into, to the topic of meditation and, I'm really into the why of meditation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know the how really well too, but now I think now now that meditation has become s- such a accepted form of uh, finding balance, internal balance, I think it's really important to talk about the why because like anything else, we in our culture, our Western culture, we have a tendency to sort of put these practices up on a pedestal and, and make these really big claims and people's, I think, real world experience can be quite different from what 
they were sort of sold. And, um, and so I just like to, and then, and then as a result, they end up letting themselves off the hook thinking, okay, well, it's for those people, not for people like me. So I like, I like to bring it down off the pedestal and show people why Mm. it's as much for you as it is for anyone else. So that's kind of what my, my deal is. Yeah. That's interesting. And, um, you're obviously incredibly relatable and I think that's one of your superpowers, if you will, um, and so you you know you bring the practice to a lot of people and you make it accessible but on that on that why front uh i think it is interesting and i've been kind of poking at this lately um a bit because there's a lot of in the name of creating sort of a bigger tent for meditation um there's a lot of effort at sort of demystifying it of like, oh, well, this is going to help you at work or this is going to help you focus and optimal performance and, you know, kind of some of making life more logistically manageable. And, and all of that is completely true. But I wonder if in your why you ask yourself, is it is it in everyone's best interest to demystify it or maybe remystify it. Because what I sometimes come to is that the reason that this practice emerged 2,500, 3,000 years ago, whatever you want to say, um, was potentially more mystical. It was about um, kind of separating oneself from desire and craving to reach a higher plane of consciousness, I suppose. And, yeah. uh, and I wonder how you feel about, about that and how that relates to your teaching kind of the, the demystification of it or potentially the remystification of it. That's interesting, um, to make that distinction because I think now that I think about it, <clears throat> a lot of my teaching and, and, and marketing of what I do is definitely geared towards the demystification and the sort of Western, you know, productivity, uh, inclined angles. So that, cause that's what people are looking for essentially. Yeah. But I'm also very well aware that that's not, that, that had nothing to do with the original purpose of, of meditation, making, essentially making more money, you know, it's not really <laughs> <laughs> why right. people originally started meditating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they were interested in wealth. It's just a different kind of wealth. There's a wealth of, of connection, a wealth of self-realization. And so I think humans inherently are seeking abundance. It's just a matter of what sort of abundance they value, what the currency is that they value. And with us in our culture, money obviously is one of the top currencies. But in the in the traditions that brought us meditation, it was feeling a sense of connection with that aspect of, of creation that they call oneness or samadhi or nirvana or Christ consciousness and, and, and being able to tap into that on a regular basis. Why? Because it feels good. Mm -hmm. Just like we have this idea that if I make a lot of money, I'll be able to get a bigger place and a nicer car and, you know, more attractive people hanging out with me. And we have this idea that that's going to feel better than where, wherever we are right now. And so in a, in a way money has become sort of our guru. If we're being honest with ourselves about it, we make a lot of decisions and prioritize a lot of things that aren't necessarily keeping us more balanced and, and aligned in life because we place such a high value on, all the things that money can buy. And we've kind of painted ourselves into a corner in our, in our, in our sort of capitalist society where we have to, at some, no matter how spiritual of a person you are, if you're a regular householder, you kind of have to, you know, go out there and, and, and hunt and you, cause you, you're only going to get what you catch. And, and, you know, we, we're not a very sort of, uh, our, our sense of altruism is, let me make a lot of money first, then I'll give the money away. <laughs> There's not a lot of people who are thinking, okay, I'm working at McDonald's. Let me see how much I can give away while I'm working here. Cause I know that that's going to feed into this idea of abundance. And I'm truly abundant. Like that conversation, it may be happening, you know, 
here and there <laughs> very sporadically, but it's definitely not a part of the main narrative of our society. Yeah, it's funny the the kind of Tom Steyer approach that you just outlined of like, okay, yeah, I mean, accumulate great wealth for the purposes of philanthropy or giving it away. And um, it, it ties in very much to sort of the egoic mind's um, sort of obsession with the future, you know, of like, mm -hmm. if only I can achieve this, you know, fill in the blank kind of success that, you know, capitalism, modern society, consumerism, whatever, you name it, you know, posits or puts forth. As long as I can get that, well, then, you know, I'll have a, I'll have a sense of contentment in the now. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, that always exists in the future. And all of those um, pleasantries, even if they are achieved, are ephemeral um, versus a kind of permanence that one can find in the now or in the contentment that is associated with the now that can be unlocked through this simple practice. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, if we just run the experiment with ourselves, like if you, if you, whatever you're, wherever you are right now, whatever you have, whatever you've acquired, whatever you've achieved, right? Look at your baseline level of happiness right now and your sense of contentedness right now. And if if there's some tension in there and some friction in there and some longing for something else other than what you're currently experiencing right now, what makes you think it's going to be any different in the future? Yeah, it, 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 It's a practice. You have to practice that. You have to cultivate that contentedness just like you would cultivate a garden. And... You know, one of the sayings from the Vedas, which is where meditation comes from, is everybody can live. Everybody can live in the Garden of Eden, but you have to you have to grow it yourself. No one else can grow it for you. Yeah, I heard a quote that you gave that I liked, which was, "Happiness is not a choice; it's less of a choice and more like doing a pull-up." That's right. So I, I want to go back as um, I'd like you know for the listeners to know a little bit more about kind of you. Um, you grew up not what I would call in the hotbed of mindfulness. Um, I think you were born in, and grew up in, Mon <laughs> in Montgomery, Alabama, although it was the cradle of the civil rights movement. So on one level, you might be able to attribute um, a lot of um, mindfulness or ethical, um, ethical work to that place. But maybe tell us a little bit about that journey of growing up and how the heck you got to be a meditation teacher from there. <laughs> yeah, I grew up very much in the Bible Belt, going to church, and the stories of civil rights figures and the movement was very much a part of the day-to-day -day, uh, narrative, especially within the black communities, which is where I was hanging out mostly. Um, but at the same time, we're talking about the 70s and the 80s, and I think what was happening back then, looking looking back now as an adult, what was happening back then is that, you know, because of the the after effects of the civil rights movement, which is there was more integration happening all throughout the country, I think the black community even was trying to identify more and more with, with that sort of the the... They wanted more access to what everyone else was doing, so there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of um, of cultivation of you know an, an African heritage or you know uh, what, what binding us all together based around you know what we had in common. It was more about let's move to those communities so that we can because our money is as good as anyone else's money. And, you know, we want to have the big houses, we want to have the jobs, we want to have everything that they have. And so I, it's interesting because I think now we're seeing a sort of shift back towards people celebrating their own heritage, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from. There's more of a celebration of your own heritage and a realization that this this quest for more is really it's not. A is not sustainable and B, it doesn't necessarily put you in a better position. What puts you in a better position is 
cultivating community and being in gratitude and 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 every ancient culture had those mm. elements and so i think now people are looking for those elements what was the how were they meditating back in africa how were they you know what were the the gratitude practices and and so those kinds of things are being held up now more and more so yeah to answer the question you know it it didn't feel while while i was aware of rosa parks and martin, martin luther king and some of the other you know major figures What's really interesting is hearing about some of the minor figures, the the Jeff Krasnos and the Light Watkinses of that era, <laughs> who maybe weren't getting national headlines, but they were people who were kind of helping to move the needle forward in that way of bringing things back to a more sustainable and a more sustainable fashion. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting the um, the the notion of integration into a culture. Um, that might not actually deliver on the promises or, or on the dreams that you might have been seeking. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I look around at our culture today, and obviously we're in a very, very specific time right now with the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but where essentially, by and large, capitalism has become the global religion and unlike other religions we actually adhere to the precepts of, of capitalism and it has not been highly correlated with delivering a lot of happiness now i want to qualify that by saying like you know you you need to have a certain amount of available capital in your life to provide yourself and your family with structure and and food and a, and a basic livelihood. But any social scientist will tell you that over a certain amount of money, there is no correlation with happiness at all. And like you pointed out, the what seems to be the core components of happiness are community and identity and sense of connection and sense of culture you know, I wonder if there's a new human story that might spin out of the time that we're in right now that where people will reprioritize some of those things. I wonder what your um, what your observations are around what's happening globally right now and what might come out. I think so. I think that um, this this enforced isolation that we're experiencing with this cor coronavirus, COVID nineteen mandated quarantine. <laughs> it sounds so so futuristic when you say it like that, because uh, you can imagine watching a movie in the nineteen eighties and they're talking about this, and it's like, wow, that's the future, and here we are, here we are, <laughs> living it. No, <laughs> I, I think. It's an it's like a market correction, but for our spirit, mm. it's an enforced spiritual connection because, um, you know, one of the hardest things for any human to do is just to spend time on their own in a room by themselves. Yeah, as uh, as Blase Pascal uh, so eloquently noted. So we're we we do not have a choice. We 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 have to we have to sort of reconcile with ourselves with our relationships with our community our family so i think what's going to come out on the other side is we're all going to be our our we're going to our butterflyness is going to become more fully expressed because we're in this kind of enforced cocoon together mm -hmm. and what that looks like i i have no idea but i know i know it's going to be beautiful and hopefully we just have that much more of, a, of an appreciation for the power of community and the power of connection and and uh and we start to see that actually you know i have all this money but it's not really i'm sitting here in my house by myself it's not really i can't pay someone to make me happy i have to have to actually have the tangible connection and that's that's what was feeding my soul this whole time and i'm now just realizing it
you can't have a society where so many people are experiencing so many mental health challenges. One in four people are experiencing diagnosable mental health challenges. So many people are homeless. So many people, the, ga- the chasm between the rich and the poor is so wide. I mean, that's not, that's not a sustainable model. And we were modeling that for the rest of the world. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the coronavirus in a way is it's a lifestyle thing. It's, it actually started affecting the wealthy people first because those are the ones who could afford to travel around the world. And it's, it's spread through travel, basically. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the poor people, you know, brought this upon us. <laughs> it was yeah. the wealthy people that caused it to spread so fast. And I think that, you know, we need to look at some of those habits of our, of our society and, and really, and really be honest with ourselves around, you know, what it is that we need to do. It's just like the conversation with reparations, you know, everyone dismissed that, but now that coronavirus is struck, you know, now we're about to, you know, give business owners, you know, trillion, potentially trillions of dollars, which I, which I fully understand and, and support, but there was no money, there was no money for a whole portion of the population who, had been suppressed and and oppressed for hundreds of years, you know? So I think that's the disconnect between the thinking about it that I think we need to, that that hopefully this situation will help us understand that, look, these people were in that situation in basically a Corona-like situation for hundreds of years. And, and, you know, you just kind of dismiss their whole thing and that doesn't make people feel good who've been oppressed. So I, I like, I like, the pos- the idea of the possibilities of what's going to emerge from this. Yeah. I mean, I, I worry about the microscope that this is going to put on that disparity between the rich and the poor um, as it plays out over the next couple of months in terms of access to healthcare and, and who is going to be most seriously afflicted. Um, but uh, as you say, uh, I do think like this is the an opportunity for a significant correction, and you know I almost think about it almost like in in biological terms of that you know we are as our human bodies are chronically inflamed you know um, right through a, a a host of decisions and behaviors and environment that is leading to chronic like these epic levels of chronic disease and mental and mental and cognitive illness, as you point out. Um, And that, that, how could that sense of constant inflammation not translate out, you know? Um, And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it's almost like there is a global inflammation. How long could it keep going? Um, I suppose would be the question without something happening. And the cultural replication component of, of coronavirus is stronger than is more replicative than the virus itself because it's essentially gotten the entire world to change its behavior in 10 days. Right. Right. Um, I want to ask you about fear and anxiety um, because I think that that is a huge component of life right now for so many people, including myself, as as many tools as I have. Well, you know, going back to the quote that you stated earlier, which is happiness is like a pull up. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's, it's not a choice to say that happiness is like a pull up is literal. It's a literal translation of, of how, how the whole thing works. Just like if anyone's ever tried to do a pull up, I mean, that was, it was the exercise that I hated the most growing up because when you, you're old enough to remember those. Those. Uh, <laughs> I know where you're going. Standardized. Yeah. <laughs> I always cheated on those with the pull-ups. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those tests that we'd have to do in school sure, once yeah. a year to yeah. show how how athletic we were. And it's like the pull-up was like the worst <laughs> part yeah. for me personally ever because I just couldn't even. I could barely even bend my elbows. And, um, well, you're very long. I'll give you that excuse, right? So. Yeah, but still, you know, it's like I, I just I. It's always been one of those impossible exercises to me. And then when I got, you know, older and, and I started working out and going to the gym and stuff, I, I was very intentional about 
about mastering the pull-up. And it took a long time to get that first repetition and then to get another repetition and then to build up to five and then to build up to 10 and all of that. And then by the time you get to 10, doing one is not a problem at all. And so in my first book called The Inner Gym, um, How uh, a 30-Day Challenge for Strengthening Happiness, I use that as the sort of key premise, the metaphor throughout the book, which is that, you know, demands being placed upon you and changes of expectation, like, oh, you can't go out of your house now for, you know, the indefinite future. And you can't be around other people. If we think about those emotional states as demands that are constantly coming to us and understand that we have to condition and train ourselves to be able to be able to tolerate them and deal with them and, and, and excel, um, then it gives us, I think, a better idea of what's needed for us to live a more balanced life. And happiness is something that needs to be cultivated um, as an adult because we lose that from our child childhood. Uh, life kind of beats it out of us, and we need to we need to really be intentional about reclaiming it. And once we do. Things can happen and we may find that it's easier to kind of see the silver lining or see the opportunities or be more optimistic or see the bright side in all situations. And, you know, I heard you say something once and I'll quote it in a second. I'll, I'll hopefully I don't misquote it, but, um, but it, it speaks to this idea of the inner gym and the training that, is required um, of not just the body, but obviously of, of the mind. And right now what you're seeing is this kind of in society in general right now, you're seeing this outpouring of, of uh, altruism and people really wanting to help each other just given the global situation. And I heard you say, compare, um, helping each helping uh, the the instinct for altruism um to the oxygen mask in a, in an airplane um right. and could could you actually uh, before i butcher it i'd love for you to kind of like <laughs> actually wind up that metaphor because I, I think it's really apt right now and very important what was the take on the whole you know you hear this in a lot of motivational talks where they say you know, you have the, the message in the airplane, you know, put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you help other people. And and I, I just kind of point out, like, why do they say that every single time? And it's because, even though we've all heard it a million times, it's because our tendency is to want to neglect ourselves and help other people. And we don't realize that when we do that, because our heart's in the right place and we're really trying to be of service, when we're not taking care of ourselves first to get our basic needs met, we eventually become a liability. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like my mom, um, she told me her high, her blood pressure has gone up recently. And it's because, you know, she, my mom looks for reasons. She's a really sweet woman and I love her to death. She looks for reasons to worry though, as a lot of mothers do. And, um, and there's some stuff that's been happening in our family over the last couple of years where she's been really worried and not sleeping well at night. And then she's never really had heart problems, but she went to go get diagnosed and her blood pressure's through the roof. So, you know, she's on the brink of becoming a liability that we all have to then stop what we're doing and go and take care of her. So she's now managing that, but that's a situation that a lot of people put themselves in by you know, needless worrying or by trying to, you know, do too much too quickly, not pacing themselves. And when we really embody the sort of more Eastern uh, understanding of this, the fact that everything I need is already inside of me and I just need to cultivate it. And once I cultivate the proper state of consciousness or awareness, then I'll be able to see things in the external world that I can use more efficiently. And if you, if you're in the, in the situation where you're, you're able to, you know, take the time to, to, to practice the self care, then that tells you that you're in the do less to accomplish more 
approach to life. So you can just look at your life and take an honest assessment and you can tell really quickly which which trajectory you're in. One of those trajectories does not end well, right? Everybody's going to die, but what we're talking about now is quality of life. The other one can support you more from a quality of life perspective. And if your quality of life is great, then the quality of life, the people who depend on you is also going to improve as well. Mm-hmm. Are you happy? Am I happy? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? I was like, no. I'm not, <laughs> You'd be <know>. like, shit. <laughs> so yeah, I have, this, sorry. I have this, uh, this little sort of game that I like to play with my, my friends and I where I say, I say, where would you fall if, if, happy, if your happiness level was zero to ten? Ten being you know, as, as, as happy as you can imagine being and zero being you, you know, you're going you're gonna to opt out of the game. Where would you fall on average? Where's your baseline? And I would, I I would say that most people's baseline is like around a seven or maybe a six. I would say I'm about an eight and a half, mm-hmm. an eight and a half, right? And I like I like that. I don't want to be at a ten because I think when you, once you get to a ten, it's, it's like why are you even? Yeah, a, a, you've transcended. <laughs> you're in, you're the Buddha at that juncture. Yeah. So yeah. If say you're at a you're at a a six or seven on the happiness scale. The next question is, what would it take to get to a nine or a 10? And, and that's where you can see what you, where you're, where you prioritize the most and where you think happiness is going to come from. Right? So some people say, say more money is going to get me to a nine, right? That's, that's the big setup. Yeah. And this is actually how I opened up my last book to get to the point of, look, it's not about the money. It's not about the material stuff. It's not about anything external, basically. It's about gratitude. It's about feeling a connection with community. It's about, you know, a lot of the things that the Blue Zone guys are already mastering. It's about finding your inner stillness. All those things are what boosts the happiness level. And now the science is actually starting to support that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, You know, I've started to think about happiness um, as the degree to which I can live a life with integrity. And for me, that is when I can align my works and actions with my highest principles, sort of regardless of external conditions, that for me feels like full alignment. And I'll ask you this because I've only ever known you to be kind and caring and compassionate and sort of gentle. Um, and I wonder, were you always that way? And, and what is the relationship between meditation or, and, and the ethical life? Interesting. That's a good question. Um, you know, I've, I've never, I've been asked that question a a lot, you know, people, when I'm teaching meditation, people want to know, have I ever been stressed out or anxious and that kind of thing. And I've had moments, I've certainly had moments, you know, living life, life on planet earth, everyone has moments where they get upset or angry or, you know, a little bit, uh, um, in a bad mood or things like that. Uh, but I've, I've actually... I've actually found that when I look back at my life, the, the thing, the most consistent trait that I, I've always had is curiosity. I've always been curious. And even when things weren't going my way, I've been curious about, okay, well, what's going to happen now? And the question usually comes, you know, how can I be of service to people? And I just think if you're, if you make that your sort of dominant, Mode, mode of living, how can I be of service, then everything else will kind of take care of itself. And I, I was very deliberate in that decision, in that in that approach many years ago. I think when I was in my late 20s, I just said to myself, I'm going to relentlessly follow my heart. I'm not going to work with people that I don't really feel inspired by. And I'm going to be of service. And I found that the more I I kept that, kept those values in everything that I did, it was easy to be kind and considerate and all of those things because it was a reflection of what 
my own personal value system was. And, and I would attract those people in those kinds of situations to myself. Yeah. I mean, well, it's no accident that many spiritual texts and even, you know, the, the 12 steps of, of AA, um, mm -hmm. you know, culminate in this notion of a life of service. And, mm. and, um, and there's a dance there between that ethical life, that engaged active ethical life and your own actual biological or biochemistry. Um, guys, they've shown, you know, now through kind of fMRIs and, and, um, and other science that we release forms of neurotransmitters, um, oxytocin and serotonin and dopamine, et cetera, when we give, um, and, and not just about philanthropy or money, though, interestingly enough, it doesn't even really matter how much, what denomination you give. Um, so in fact, mm -hmm. like the best ways to give are small domination, denominations all the time. And that keeps your kind of biochemistry mm -hmm. cranking. Um, but that there is a, a correlation between literally how we're wired and, uh, and this notion of a life of service. And, uh, I find that really interesting and, and, and it needs to be cultivated because it doesn't, cause you know, the way the systems and structures of our modern society are set up, it doesn't necessarily lead us on down a straight path towards a life of service. Yeah. And then, you know, also when you look at, I mean, I don't know, you, when you get in your forties and fifties and stuff, you end up going to you know, a good amount of funerals in your life. And you, you look at what people are saying, how, how people are being eulogized. And that's all they talk about. Yeah. All people talk about is how this person was of service. You know, it doesn't matter how much money they made or how many accomplishments they had. Usually it comes down to how they inspired me, how they helped me, what they said that encouraged me. You know, that's what people talk about. That's what people remember. And I, I, you know, I, I, again, I'm very curious. So I would always go to these these events, and I, you know, you hear these stories. And it's like, wow, what is it that people remember at the end of your life? And I just, it just became very clear to me that that's that's what's most important. It's funny that you mention um, the natures of eulogies and how they, they never say, oh, well, this guy had a private plane and you know, right. they never <laughs> enumerate the great riches. And uh, I think a lot of that comes from the contemplation that one goes through in times of, I guess crisis or inflection points or it could be death or it could be a global pandemic where all of a sudden the mind actually gets quiet mm. and contemplates. There, there's a line in um, A Course in Miracles um, that says, the memory of God comes to the quiet mind. Mm. A mind at war with itself will not know eternal gentleness. Something like that. Mm -hmm. And the memory of God. So in a way, if we translate that, not as, you know, some geezer in a Merlin's cap on, up on top of a mountain or somewhere, <laughs> sort of like the memory of what is valuable, of what is true and perennial and universal, that mm -hmm. memory, we reconnect with that in the quiet mind. It, it's made me think of um, the, this book, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which I talk about quite a bit. But um, in that book, he, he has a sort of a, a critique of Freud. And I think Freud says something to the effect that extreme hunger makes everyone the same. And uh, in a way, what, what Freud's talking about is that we all devolve in times of crisis. 
And and Frankel completely kind of dispels that idea. And he said, yeah, well, that kind of might have, that's a nice thought to have in a leather armchair. But like mm-hmm. I was in Auschwitz and Dachau, and let me tell you, extreme hunger actually delineates the differences between people. It doesn't make them the mm. same. It actually delineates like, because there were people in in that situation that were so dire that still found what Frankel calls the meaning in that suffering that found the dignity to give away or share their last piece of bread or their shoes or their shoelaces. And, you know, I have that great hope now. Mm. And, you know, and I, I also just think that, you know, these modalities that have obviously become more mainstream, like meditation, honestly, very much due to folks like you that have made it accessible, um, but that have largely been seen as, you know, Eastern or fringe or whatever, is that are, are we almost going through an organic period of discovering a form of meditation right now? Mm-hmm. Is that possible? Yeah, I think so. I think I think it's it's like you know if you tell a Navy SEAL, hey, you can't, there's no toilet paper anymore, can't go out of your house, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, they're not they're, they're not going to even bat an eye, you know. Yeah. It's like what I'm a Navy Navy SEAL. I, I don't need toilet paper. I don't need anything. I can just put me anywhere at any time, and I'll thrive. And and I think that this period for us is kind of like boot camp or Bud's training, which is the Navy SEALs Hell Week experience, which weeds out the you know the people who are going to quit versus the people who are going to make it. Mm-hmm. It's like that for our spirit. It's going to help us to see that we can actually endure anything. And so this is a kind of a global way of kind of getting all of us maybe to even just have more dialogue with one another, these different cultures, these different societies. We need to share information now because it's affecting all of us in the same way. And, um, and it's, I think it's, it's actually, it's a timely thing. It's unfortunate that obviously that people are, are, um, you know, some people are dying, but people are, more people are dying from, uh, from the symptoms of the sort of unsustainable approach from life. So hopefully on the long term, this will, this will cause less people to die from sort of these lifestyle behaviors that can be, avoided if we just were more aware of them yeah do you have um any has your sense of the role of the teacher changed at all during this time or or what do you think that role is right now that's a good question i i don't honestly i don't feel any different (laughs) because i've always had a high reverence for teachers i just think that I think other people are now starting to sort of wake up and realize, wow, you know, the people who can really help us to get through this are the ones that we've been treating as, you know, uh, extracurricular activity or, you know, been tr- you know, doing the, <laughs> let me go donate $5 to their cause or this kind of thing. But meanwhile, I'm happy to pay as much money as I, you know, as I feel the need to, to drink alcohol or buy guns or, you know, pay off this politician and these kinds of things. And, and hopefully that what comes out of this school teachers will be a lot more appreciated yeah. <laughs> and meditation teachers and yoga teachers and anyone who you can't access now in person um, because of the isolation that we kind of have to, we have to go, we have to do for just a relatively short amount of time compared to, you know, life. But it's a, it's a lot. And, and I think that that is going to show us you know, researchers and biologists and people who can come up with vaccines and, and people who teach people like that. I mean, those, these, are the, these are the sort of unsung heroes of society that are kind of shortchanged almost all the time until something like this happens. And, and then we start to see, oh, wow, this is what's really, truly important. So I just think that mentality of, of being more aware of what's important, hopefully will cause some shifts in that regard. I don't expect anything to happen overnight, but I think it's a good start. 
And I'm looking forward to seeing the post-coronavirus world and, and what we do with that. And if we default back to our old conditioning, which we will probably to some extent, but you know, what gets born out of this and, um, and how we in the wellness community can play a role in that both now and, and in that time after the whole thing passes. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely more interested in disseminating as much information as I can to help people. That was kind of one of the reasons why I wrote the book Bliss More that came out a couple of years ago was for situations exactly like this, Mm -hmm. um, to help people learn how to access meditation without all the airy fairiness on their own so that they can enjoy the same benefits that someone like me gets to enjoy. Yeah. So last question, um, for you today and then we can do another one sometime i hope Um, (laughs) which is now now that you can do more than one pull-up maybe you can do 100 pull-ups um Uh or 50 um right where where do you get inspiration then you know um where do you go for growth and i guess thought leadership and inspiration now that you've achieved what you've already achieved that's great great question so here's my answer i get inspiration from helping other people get inspiration Mm. that's one way and then i also get inspiration from seeing other people take that inspiration and they start to become more mission driven so for the last almost four years i've been sending out a daily inspirational email called the daily dose of inspiration and what that has done it, that's like going to the gym for inspiration, basically, because it's a it's a new story every day. Uh, so you're talking like a thousand plus stories so far. Wow. Now, I probably knew off the top, off, you know, my own little cachet of stories, maybe maybe thirty stories when I first started doing that project. So I was tapped out of that after a month, month and a half, and then I had to start basically looking around me and and exploring and reading and researching and finding other stories to to communicate. And, And, and so what I find now is that I, because I've been trained, training myself to look for inspiration personally every day, it's almost impossible to have a bad day because I'm always looking for what's the lesson, what's the teaching here, what's the story that I can share with my readers to help them have a little boost of inspiration in their life using my own experiences. And so that's become my sort of inspiration generator. And um, and just anything else, it's like anything else, the more you do it, the stronger you get at it, the better you get at it. And, And I can't say it necessarily gets easier, but certain aspects of it, like the writing of it, the expression of it does become a little bit more manageable and you don't have to, you know, worry about that so much, but, um, but yeah, I would say doing that and then, and then hearing from people who've taken those little nuggets of inspiration and they've changed things in their life and they've improved things and, and they're now taking those same leaps of faith. And I think that's really inspiring and interesting. Hmm. And that was also one of the reasons why I started to shine is because I, I just like hearing those the story of the hero's journey. And that's the event that is the variety show for basically inspiration. Yeah. That, that, Wanderlust. That's what I was going to ask you about as the last thing is like, what's up with the shine? Cause I think that's how we initially met. That's right. Um, maybe, I don't know, five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved the shine. I loved it. And partially because it was a fulfillment of something that had been dancing around my head and then you actually did it, <laughs> which is, uh, which is 99% of it. Um, and just to, to see someone that had, had instantiated, um, this new, very cool idea into, into life was very inspiring. So I, I'm wondering what's going on with it at this juncture. Well, we had, we did, we did like maybe 60 or 70 events over the course of five years. And after our fifth year anniversary, which was two years ago, we decided to reimagine what it could be. Because as you know, the events were, you know, 200, 300, 350 people, um, all volunteer and basically just doing it for the love and it just it was a lot to organize and to manage and um and we wanted to 
create a way for people to do it in a smaller scale in their living room. And so that, that became the dominant conversation. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I'd love to talk to you about that offline sometime, but using the model of like TEDx or AA or any kind of distributed leadership, decentralized form of, of event creation or meetup or community gathering really, and then empower the people in their own place to do it. And uh, so I think that's a beautiful vision. Well, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you deeply. I've always loved all our interactions and you've done just uh, great work, inspiring work. So keep it up. Thanks, man. And I'm honored to be on the podcast finally. So thanks for inviting me and I look forward to uh, hopefully coming back and sharing some more um, with the work that I'm currently doing that's going to be coming out in the next couple of years. Yeah, I look forward to that. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, beautiful. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's show. To learn more about Light and his work, go to lightwatkins.com. And if you have any comments or questions about today's show, shoot me an email at jeffk at onecommune.com. I always love and appreciate hearing directly from you. That's all from the commune for this week. I'm Jeff Krasno, and I'm here for you. Mm-hmm.